Okay, let's start the prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when, you are ins- when people insult you, and persecute you, and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. O Jesus, we realize that your spiritual program is the Beatitudes. Another word for that would be to love the cross to love sacrifice, to love discipline. We pray for that grace today, Lord, that we might desire to be unnoticed. In this Christmas season, we remember especially John the Baptist, who did nothing but point to you. May our lives point to you. We entrust this conference in this day to you, to the intercession of our mothers. We pray together. Hail Mary. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> so today I kind of want to talk about a bit on the Beatitudes and a bit on uh, love of the cross. Because there is no real love of the cross in our day and age. <clears throat> Nobody loves the cross. In fact, even Christians don't love the cross. Right? I, I don't love the cross. You know, it's, it's a hard thing to love. You know, I remember in, in Mel Gibson's The Passion when he, right, the cross kind of falls on his shoulders. And what's the first thing he does? Jesus embraces it, right? And the other guys are like screaming at him like, what is the matter with you? <laughs> like, that's going to kill you. you know? and Jesus, but Jesus hugs the cross. He holds the cross to himself. And... Uh, I think, it's, I think there's no love of the cross because we're slowly, slowly, slowly being converted over to pleasure. That like that's the ultimate good. And you can sit back and you say, yeah, I'm like fighting against that. I'm, I'm moving against that. But at the same time, we live in the culture. There's such a thing as a social sin, right? It's a sin of the society. And it, if it infects us. Whether we want to admit it or not, it infects us. Um, and so I was, <clears throat> you know, I steal a lot of my stuff. <laughs> I, you know, in order to, to, to keep coming up with new stuff every day, you know, is, is very difficult. Um, we preach every day. We give talks all the time. So sometimes I steal some stuff. And I, I recently heard this story about Alexander the Great. Um, he was a great leader. That's why they called him the Great. Uh, by the age of 24, uh, he had conquered an empire. <laughs> he was, uh, he was, his subjects were loyal to him. He was a, a warrior. Uh, he wasn't a model Christian by any sense of the imagination, 
But, uh, but he, was a, he was a man who commanded power at a very young age and was very disciplined. And the way that Alexander the Great conquered countries or societies was very, very interesting. Because he very easily could have come in and just run over the society, right? Which is what he did with the military. But then he didn't force the people into submission. He did something very, very clever. He was from the, uh, he was a, of Greek Hellenistic culture. And so what he did is, as he would come in, you know, there was a story, even when he came to Israel, and he was like, he was very impressed with the Jewish people. He was very impressed with this God, Yahweh. He even offered incense. You've got to love pagan people, right? They're like, tell me about this guy. Oh, he's great. I'll offer incense to him, you know? <laughs> but as, there's, as he comes in, he slowly, one thing at a time, introduces Greek culture, right? And so the people are like, he's like, tell me about your culture. And they're like, oh, we got all this beautiful stuff, you know? And he's like, really? He's like, you know what? Have you ever tried Greek food? And they're like, no. He's like, do you want to try it? And they're like, yeah. And they start eating Greek food. And they're like, hey, Greek food is good. And he's like, I know, right? Hey, you guys have your own like, you know, kind of, you know, theater and drama. You should see the Greek plays. And people are like, really? And they're like, yeah. He's like, you want to see a Greek play? Let's put on a Greek play. And they're like, great. You know, and they put on one of the comedies. And they're like, this is awesome. Greek plays are great. And he says, yeah, you know what? The Greek language, it's very romantic, very beautiful. You should start to learn the Greek language. And they're like, yeah, that'd be great. Then we'd be multilingual. So they start learning the Greek language. And so on and so on and so on until one day they wake up and they're like, frick, we're Greek. <laughs> What just, how did that happen? You know what, I think we see this the same way in our society. That we're slowly, people, you hear this all the time. People are like, what has happened? How did this happen? You know, like marriage was seemingly redefined overnight. How did we let that happen? Because it's the same way. It's these little things. Devil acts the same way. He slowly introduces things, slowly introduces things, slowly introduces things. And we are like, you know, I'm not, I'm not killing people, you know, but I, I like my material goods, you know. I, I like my new iPhone. Well, you know, the, I, by the way, this just, sometimes I digress. But, and so my, my talks are supposed to be shorter, but sometimes they get longer because <clears throat> things like pop into my head. So I was getting <clears throat> the iPhone. And uh, there's this program, it's called the Edge program with Verizon. Basically, you, can, you lease a phone, you just pay like 20 bucks a month, and then when the new one comes out, you got the new one. And I said to the guy who's trying to sell me this, he's, uh, I was like, so why? Why would I want to do this? And he's like, it was so awesome, just a trained salesman. He looks at me, he's like, Father, because the next best thing is to come. <laughs> I'm like sitting there. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, so this this idea that like there's always something more to come, and that's why we're never satisfied. That's why we, li- we live in like a totally dissatisfied culture. It's never enough. I call it the one more thing syndrome. So I I love to hunt. When I was hunting, I'm like, okay, Lord, I got a shotgun, but I need a rifle. If I get a rifle, that's it. I'm done. I don't need, any, I don't need anything else. I've got the rifle. I can, then I can hunt. So I get the rifle. I'm like, this rifle is awesome, right? And then all of a sudden, somebody's like, well, you know, you, you go rifle hunting for deer, you need to wear orange. 
I'm like, okay. So I just got to get this orange coat. <clears throat> Going to buy that. I'm done. Okay. Buy that. Kill a deer. Great. Next, you know, week deer hunting season's over. My buddy comes up. He's like, have you coyote hunt before? I'm like, no, but that sounds really fun. He's like, what kind of gun do you have? I'm like, 7mm. He's like, oh, that'll destroy a coyote. You need like a 243 or a 22, 250. I'm like, well, okay, Lord, one more gun. That's all I need. I get the one more gun. I'm like, sweet, I'm coyote hunting. He's like, well, you can't go dressed like that. They'll see you. You need camo. Oh, well, okay. This is serious. I, this is for hunting. I just need some camo. I get the camo. Snows. You need white camo, otherwise they can see. Okay, I get my white. You guys, and it just goes on and on and on. It, there's, there's just no end to it. So there has to be some discipline in our lives. Otherwise, we will slowly be converted over to this way of the world, you know? And, I, you know, I, I, in this, this story of, of Alexander the Great, after he had died and, you know, other people took over is when kind of the submission of, of Israel came. And they, it's, it's, it's recounted in the book of Maccabees, if you want to read it. It's really, really interesting. And there was this old guy, his name was Eliezer. And he was like 80 years old. And they came in and they're like, look, dude, it's time to convert. Because he was the only one. Everybody in Israel is like walking up and offering incense to the pagan gods. And, and Eliezer, who's like 80 years old, is like, I'm not doing that. And they're like, come on, just join us. Be like everybody else. And he's like, Why? Why would I do that? Why would I forsake the laws of God? And they're like, okay, here's the deal. Because it was all about, all he had to do was eat a piece of pork, right? Something that we all love. We ate pork this morning. It was wonderful, right? So like a piece of sausage or a piece of bacon or whatever it was. And they're like, just eat this. And he's like, I'm not eating that. And they're like, okay, here's the deal. Eliezer, just go up and we'll give you a turkey. I don't know, some other meat, hamburger. And he's like, and you go Yum, bacon. You don't even have to eat it. Just pretend like you're going to eat it. And he's like, and why would I do that and scandalize all these young hearts here and bring down terrible scandal on my gray hair? And they killed him. Because he wouldn't eat sausage. (laughs) They killed him. And so what had happened with Alexander the Great, this <clears throat> gentle, like, oh, check this out. Hey, check this out. Hey, isn't this great? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. Like, hey, we're Greek. And then you're like, well, I don't want to be Greek. You're dead. So what had turned into this gentle little, hey, kind of, you know, now it turned into a totalitarian regime. And we're seeing this more and more and more in our own culture, right? That if, you're even, if you even try to speak out... I was we were on the way up here, Tanner, when we read that thing about, uh, what was it, the House of Representatives? They had just released this thing. That anything that you say against the Islam religion is going now to be considered hate speech. <clears throat> but say all you want against Christianity. <laughs> say whatever you want against Catholicism. But Islam, watch yourself. I still can't figure that out. Why do they hate us so much? I remember at Easter, it was Christmas Mass, and we're like singing Silent Night, and there was a little girl carrying up a baby Jesus. I'm like, why do they hate us? Like, this is beautiful. And yet you watch the news, and you see people's throats being slit. And that's the one that's defended. 
Jesus said, he said, you will be insulted. You will be persecuted for my name. And so when people say, don't you hate all this stuff that's going on with the Catholic Church? It just, you know, they're coming down. So I'm like, no, you know, really, it just proves that we're the true church. Jesus told us this was going to happen. I don't know why everybody's freaking out. And not only did he tell us it was going to happen, he told us that when it did happen, if we stand up for him, good job. So this is our time to shine. I remember Archbishop Sheeney has this poem. He said, he said, he said, it's so hard. He said, it was easy to be Catholic 50 years ago. The whole, the whole nation was Catholic. He's like, not now. Now times are difficult. And he said, but these are glorious times. It is fun to be Catholic now. Right? Because you have, you have to prove yourself now. You can't just be going to Mass and everybody's like, oh, there's John. He's Catholic. Now everybody assumes that you're not. I always tell the kids, I was, when I taught high school, even when I taught college, everybody's like, yeah, I said, you want to be a rebel? You guys all think I'm a, oh, I'm a rebel, I'm going to go get drunk. Oh yeah, that's a rebel. Who isn't doing that? <laughs> I'm going to be a rebel, I'm going to sleep with my girlfriend. Okay, yeah, nobody's doing that these days. You want to be countercultural? You want to be a rebel? Live your faith. That's something nobody's doing. That's something that would, you want, that's going to be something that is, Absolutely pushing get back against the culture. So what did Eliezer have? You know, there was a, the, right after Eliezer. Do you guys know the story when the, the mother with the seven sons? Oh man, if you haven't read it, you got to read it. It's it. I mean, it's terrible, <laughs> but it's amazing. She watches each of her sons be like brutally tortured and killed. And at the end, the last son, the youngest, they're trying to get him. To give in. And she says, don't you dare give in. She said, how you came to me in my womb, I will never know. But I will see you again. So stay strong and hold on to the law. You know, like that, man. How refreshing would that be in our day and age? To see people that had that kind of conviction. I once heard, I don't know what the poet was, that said... The worst, or the, the, the good of humanity lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. I mean, do you feel the movement of evil, like picking up, and the cowering of good before that? I don't understand that. You know? That we have to be out and fighting for the Lord. He, he wants us to fight for Him. And He'll be there for us. We gotta know him, because when we know him, we'll trust him. I once heard uh, <clears throat> someone say this: "We lose ourselves when we compromise the very ideals we fight to defend, and we honor those ideals by upholding them, not when it is easy, but when it is most difficult." It's a great quote, huh? Let's say that again: "We lose ourselves when we compromise the very ideals we fight to defend." And we honor those ideals by upholding them, not when it is easy, but when it is most difficult. You know who said that? Barack Hussein Obama. <clears throat> That's insane. So the question is, what are we going to do, right? You're going to give into the culture slowly every day? Or if we don't want to, how do we fight against that? Because you want to be a saint. The whole retreat's about being a saint. Saint means, you know, in, in Greek is uh, agios, in Latin is sanctus. It means to be set apart. To be in the world but not of the world. To be set apart. To be something different. 
You know, maybe a better way to say it is who will you serve? That's a biblical way of saying it. Who will you serve? God or mammon? Mammon is the worldly ideologies, right? The self-serving ideologies. And uh, I think there's tons of answers to the question what mammon is. I think that Jeremiah 17, I think Jeremiah 17 captures exactly what this is. And it says, Cursed be the man that places his trust in human beings, who seeks his strength in himself, who turns his heart away from the Lord. That's mammon. That's what the devil's trying to do to every one of our hearts. Self-reliance to cut off God so the rise of God, the rise of man, the death of God. I think it was Dostoevsky, right? He says there's two ages of men. From the rise of man to the death of God and from the death of God to the annihilation of man. And I think we are beginning to see the beginnings of that annihilation of man. What was that verse? Uh, chapter 17. The, the verses of both of them are uh, 5 through 8. <clears throat> So to trust in ourselves, to ground and center one's concerns in the things of the world, that's mammon. That's, you can either serve that or you can serve the Lord. It's a big either or, right? I, you know, and I think if I asked all of you, I'm like, who do you serve? <laughs> if I asked you, who do you serve? I would hope everybody would be like, well, I serve the Lord. I serve Christ. And you know, and I recently read an article. It, it said that they, they polled people, and 95%, I know there are thousands of people polled, 95% of the people polled checked, yes, I believe in God. That's encouraging. Because right now you think everybody's an atheist and pro-gay. You know what I mean? Like, that's what the media portrays as our culture. But it's not. Our culture is theist. They believe. They don't know what they believe, but they believe. And so that's encouraging. That's a place to start. But my question would be, as they check, yes, I believe, I would say to them, but what does it do to your life? How does it change your life? How does it impact every single decision you make? Are you really believing in God? Or are you believing in your own version of God? Hey, are you believing in the God who created you in his image and likeness? Or are you believing in a God that you created in your own image and likeness? Because it's easy to believe in God when things are good. When I'm sitting in Mexico drinking a margarita on the beach, looking at the waves, I'm like, man, God is good. Who, do, who wouldn't want to believe in God? When I'm looking at a sunset, when... But when I'm forced into a situation where i got to defend the Lord, how good is God then? Because Jesus says those are our crowning moments, not Mexico. <laughs> the moment we're persecuted and we, and we stand up for him. And he will help us to say what we need to say. I remember we had this guy, he was an NFL football player. And he came into St. Mary's High School and he gave a talk. <clears throat> and he said, you know, like, I just, I just started. He, was, he wasn't living a very good life. And then he's like, you know, I just kind of had this conversion. It was through mass and prayer and all these things. And he said, I was in the locker room. And this, this guy, one of the linemen, came in and just started throwing things over and punching lockers. And everybody's like, what the, <laughs> you know, what is going on with this guy? He's like, I just found out my girlfriend's pregnant. And everybody's like, oh, man, that sucks. You know, like, they're like, that's terrible. And they're like, this one guy's like, well, dude, you got to get an abortion. Just have her get an abortion. It's, all, it's easy. You can pay for it. 
And he said this guy, you know, he was always kind of shut out. And he finally got up. He's like, I couldn't take that. He's like, that, that was, that's a human being. And he got up and he's like, you can't do that. And he's like, he's like, when I stood up and said, you can't do that, I was like, oh, crap. I have no idea why or how I'm going to defend this. And the guy looks at, you know, and the guy, he's a lineman. This guy was a wide receiver. And he's like, why not? And he's like, because he's like, that's a human being. And one guy's like, no, it's not. He's like, it's not a human being. And he's like, and he's like he said, stuff just started coming to him. And he's like, he's like, okay, let me ask you a question. When is it a human being? And the lineman's like, when it's born. And he's like, how about the day before? He's like, uh. he's like I, can't, I can't get an abortion, man. That's, that's a human being. <laughs> you know, like, it was that easy. But it just took somebody standing up in the midst of, you know, complete resistance. To stand up, to be man enough, or to be woman enough to say, you can't do that. And here's why. And it doesn't mean we're always going to win. I fought with a young woman for like two months, begging and pleading she was going to go have an abortion. I said, please don't. I even had a family lined up to take the kid. I did everything in my power except for physically restraining her. And she still went and got the abortion. But we have to fight. And that takes immense discipline. An immense love of the cross. And we got to be all in. I'll tell you a story about being all in. When I was, <clears throat> I call it BC. It's before conversion. It's my, my BC life. <clears throat> so we, my brother and I and some friends, we went down to the Gorge, Washington. I don't know if you guys have ever been down there. It's a beautiful, or up there, or over there, <laughs> all west. It's a beautiful place, this amphitheater. And it's, it's like carved into the, it's all naturally made. It's gorgeous. We went and saw the Dave Matthews band there. We thought three straight shows, three back to back to back nights. Okay, <clears throat> and uh, but during the, and that was great. The nights were great, but at, but during the day there was nothing really to do. So my buddies and I were like, let's go find something to do. So we're driving around. We see these cliffs, right? And then below them is the is water, the river, the Colorado River, or Arkansas River, or some river. I don't know. But anyway, we're like, we should go jump off those. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> it's like BC dumb decisions. So we're like, yeah, let's go. Like thirty foot cliff. <clears throat> There's a 30-foot cliff, so we, we go, and we get out there, and we're like, we look down. You know, this is a stupid thing when you're in college. You don't, we didn't check the depth. We're like, well, it looks deep. You know? <laughs> it was like, somebody just jumped. We're like, okay. So, you know, somebody takes off, and they're like, woo! And they're like, you know, you hit the bottom, but it wasn't terrible. So we're like, great, you know, so we're jumping and jumping and jumping, everybody's jumping. All of a sudden, I'm like, you know, this is cool. But I, like, turn around, I looked, and, like, a ways off in the distance was like, we figured about a 90-foot cliff, maybe a 100-foot cliff. And we're like, now that, that would be fun. <clears throat> and we're like, yeah. <laughs> so everybody goes, and we get over this cliff, and it was funny because we got out, you know, and we're all, everybody's jacked up. And we're like, we're going to jump off this thing. And, we get, and when you get to the edge of a 100-foot cliff and you look down, it's a lot different than when you're on a 30-foot cliff looking over at it. You look down at it, and everybody's just like, man, that's a... <laughs> that's a lot further than we thought. Yeah, but think how much fun it's going to be. Oh, yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> Who's going to go? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was your idea to come over here, so you should probably jump. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I went first last time, so... And my brother's the oldest, so he should probably go because of seniority. You know, we just sit there, and we talk and talk and talk. And finally, I'm sitting back, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. Nobody's ever going to jump. 
So I just back up, and they're still talking, and I'm just like, yeah! You know, I was like, Whoa! and just jump. And you know, like, I'm like, Whoa! and all of a sudden I'm like, ah! you know, because like, you, when you get a third of the way down, which is where I hit on the other one, <clears throat> you're not even halfway. And you see the water coming at you, and you feel yourself like continually picking up more and more speed, and you feel out of control, and you're like flailing, you know? <laughs> And then when I hit, my hands hit, my arms hit like this. That night, I was black and blue all the way down my arms. <clears throat> they had one, one girl jumped off of it. Because, I don't know, she wanted to fit in or something. <clears throat> and as she, as she jumped, <laughs> as she jumped, she was like this. And she looked at the water and hit and just, <clears throat> and just came up like floating. And my buddies are like, she dead? <laughs> We're like, I don't know, just get her out of the water, you know? Totally knocked, just cold cock knocked her out. But anyway, so I hit the, hit the water, and again, <clears throat> didn't check depths, nothing. And, uh, you know, I come down, and as I hit the water, I'm like, ouch. You know, like, that really hurts. But I'm alive. So I, like, came up, and I'm just like, yeah! You know, and all these guys, I don't know if you ever seen on National Geographic, you know, like, the penguins, what they do... <clears throat> Is they, they keep going like this until one like falls over the edge. And then if that one comes up, it means it's not eaten or dead. And then everybody jumps in. <coughs> so they're all like, <laughs> look at as I come up, like, yeah. They're just like, foo, 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 foo. people just start jumping. And it was so cool to watch as they're like, yeah. I'm like, look up. <laughs> you know? So it was just, but there was, there was one guy that didn't jump. Okay? Just, I don't know. He, he was weak, whatever. <laughs> just, he, just, he just couldn't do it. <laughs> so, as we're later on that night, we're sitting around the campfire. And uh, there's all these people from, I mean, they're all over the nation. And everybody's talking, yeah, we did this, we did this. And like, you're like, you know what we do? Like, we jumped off this 90-foot cliff. First we did this 30-foot, then we did this 90-foot. And they're like, no way. And I'm like, it was so awesome. And then the guy that didn't jump was like, yeah, it was amazing. And I like, all of us like turned and looked and we're like, you didn't even jump. And he's like, well, yeah, but the cliff, you know, and the, it was really high, it was awesome. And I, you know, and I, I got, I, I started thinking about, I don't know why this came to me, but it came to me because like, <clears throat> that's the difference between the people who live their faith and the people who don't live their faith. The ones that are like, yeah, I'm all in, I'm all in, but their, ma- their lives don't match it. Whereas the ones, the ones that really live their faith, they get to the edge of this cliff called Catholicism. And they look off of it and they're like, this is insane. This is really stupid. Nobody is going to like me. <laughs> like, I'm going to have few friends, you know, but like they jump. Whereas the other ones get to the edge, they, for some reason, maybe it's... Some sort of thing that makes them feel good or whatever. But it never impacts their life. They never really jump. It's just something exterior to them. So cliff jumping's reckless. <laughs> I learned that. But so is living the faith. And how often does the faith seriously impact your daily decisions? On a, on a given day, how much... Because it's a good measure as to whether you're all in or you're not. Whether you're jumping off the cliff or you're standing on the edge. A good measure of that is how often do you think of Jesus throughout the day? Do you think of the faith when you have to make a decision? Are you praying? How often is it on your mind? 
That's a good question. And we have to realize that every choice is making us into a certain type of person. Either we are becoming more God-focused or we're becoming more self-focused. More selfish or more unselfish. More a man of a woman for others or more of a man or a woman for ourselves. We can never, ever forget that. One of my favorite things that Pope Francis said. He said, you're either serving God or you're serving the devil. There ain't no in-between. And each choice is turning you into a certain type of person. And at the end of your life, I say this all the time in my class, at the end of your life, if you come to the end of your life and you're, you know, jacked, ready to go to heaven, loving your family, all this, that's because you made good choices. Now, grace helped you, but you responded to grace. And that's why God says to those, well done, my good and faithful servant. You did well. You made good choices. You trusted me. You stayed with me. Now enter into your master's joy. See, the way of the world is so different from the way of God. The way of the world is this. Let's have fun! Right? It's like, what? And and that's the way it is. It's up and downs, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's, let's, okay, okay. And then all of a sudden everything starts falling apart. Right? Whereas with, with, with the way of the way of uh, the spiritual life is in the beginning is very difficult but then you start to you start to rise and rise and rise so it's this how do you want so you want to take it as it is right when it comes to you have fun be reckless with your life or do you want to be reckless with God because God gives you one life one life you guys 70 to 80 years maybe What's going to be at the end of your life? What are people going to say? You know what's funny about funerals? <clears throat> when you go to funerals, it doesn't matter how terrible the person was. They always try to say what? Good things. I mean, you never see a guy get up. You know, he'd be like, well, I just want to welcome everybody here. And I want to tell you, the, the, the thing I'm most proud of my son is that he was a meth dealer. I mean, they, there are few men that could deal meth like him. And, and that made me... Pr- Nobody ever says that. You know, what do you hear? The most common one that I... Maybe you guys don't go to a lot of funerals. I do. <clears throat> the most common one you hear is, he was a good man. <laughs> you know what? I don't want to laugh about it, but like... I'm like, what the hell does that mean? He was spiritual. You know, by the way, I, thought, I, I, I think it was Deacon Keating said, the difference between spiritual and religious. Have you ever heard this? No, he was very spiritual, but he wasn't religious. The difference between spiritual and religious is spiritual is, I believe in God, but on my terms. Religious is, I believe in God, but on God's terms. So if somebody says, oh, I'm spiritual, I say, well, then you don't believe in God. You've made up your own version of God that corresponds to the way you live, and you're happy with that. So be it is as it is. But when we're, when, we're, when we're religious, we take God at his word that he has left us. We believe in God and we say, God, I am submitting to what you say. I'm going to conform my life to yours. I don't want you to conform your life to mine. So here are some examples to help you. I hope <clears throat> the gospel is specifically given to us in the Beatitudes. Okay, I just want to, I'm not all of them, but a couple of them. So this is a question, do you really love God as much as you think you do? And I'm not doing this to make you feel terrible. 
I'm doing this to encourage you to continue to move even further because I think sometimes we plateau. So first is blessed are the poor. Another way to say that is blessed are you if you don't place your trust in material things. And you remember blessed, you know, the actual word is like happy. How happy you will be if you don't place your trust in material things. So what are some signs that you're placing your trust in material things? I would say this. How much time do you spend thinking about things you want to get? <laughs> I laugh because I'm thinking about myself. Two, how painful is it when you lose money? Three, do you find you are never satisfied with what you have? Four, do you find yourself often comparing your possessions to others? Five, how much do you work? Is work where you place all your effort? Maybe you're placing your faith in money and wealth and material things more than you think. I give you practical advice. So I, I do want to give you some practical advice because that's always helpful. Yeah, you tell you like, oh yeah, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing this. Good luck. There's some practical advice to fight against that. <clears throat> Start giving more away. How much are we called to give away as Catholics? 10%. Guess what? That is the minimum. <laughs> I think everybody wants to make that the maximum. 10%. Well, I give my 10%. I'm like, sure, you're a multimillionaire. <laughs> 10% for you is nothing. So start giving more away. <clears throat> and second, stop working so much for money or for things and start using your time for volunteer work, for charities. Give of your time. You know, I think more than our money, God wants our, he wants our hearts. He doesn't want our possessions. He wants our hearts. So those are just a few couple of things. And, you know, just a, an example. I had this guy. His name was Jerry Schmidt. <clears throat> he was a parishioner out of Minoke. He died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 54. In his last month of life, I went and visited him. He was on a morphine. Or his last week, he was on a morphine pump. He had withered. This guy was a big, tough, freaking rancher. <clears throat> and he was a wealthy man. He was a successful man. And here was he. Was, there was nothing left. I mean, you guys have seen that. What cancer does to the human body. It just sucks the life out of it. There was nothing left, skin and bones. And I came up to him, I gave him the anointing, heard his confession, and I said, Jerry, I said, at the end of all things, what have you learned? Because I said, I have to go, this is it was this true story. I was like, I have to go and give a talk to a bunch of college kids. And right now, you are the source and the fount of wisdom. Because you're on the edge of this life and the next. And so you tell me right now what's most important. And on a dime. So he must have been thinking about this. On a dime, he said, Father, <clears throat> first of all, you don't control a damn thing in this life. He said, I thought my whole life I was in control. I don't control anything. And second of all, I would have worked half as much. And I would have spent that time working, not working, with my family and those I love. Because people are more important than things. I mean, how beautiful. I mean, it stinks that the guy had to get to the end of his life to realize that, but he got it. He got it. And I think that's why sometimes, you know, as much as I hate death and I'm freaked out about death and I don't want to die, and, I'm, you know, <clears throat> actually what I want to die is like, do you believe in Jesus? Boom! Yeah, you know, and I'm like, yeah, martyr, right? But it's probably going to be like, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, okay, rip his eyeballs out. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Skin his feet. 
stick a hot iron in his ear. Just one of them. You know? Like, I think I'm going to have a very long-suffering sort of death. But I think, it's, I think he left death because it's the last chance for us to turn to him. If you won't turn there, you'll never turn. St. Thomas Aquinas said that was kind of his, <clears throat> I mean, his basis for capital punishment. He said if a person is faced with capital punishment and they won't repent, it's safe to say they will never repent. Death is the last chance. The last chance. So remember, it's about people, relationship. It's not about things. Two, blessed are you who are hungry and blessed are you who are weeping. Those two, uh, I think a, a better way to say it is blessed are you if you don't root your life in sensual pleasure. If you don't root your life in sensual pleasure. Here's some signs. How much time and money is given over to pleasure? And I don't mean like vacations to Disneyland. I mean like sitting on the couch watching a movie. Turn on Netflix. That's all pleasure stuff, man. How much time do you spend there? Facebook. Social media. That's all pleasure. How do you react when your life becomes painful? I think I told you yesterday. When I, when, when I suffer, I make everybody suffer with me. I remember one time I got... I actually got H1N1. You remember that whole craze? <clears throat> yeah. So I got it, and, and when I got in, and I was feeling like really like garbage, and the doctor's like, no, you got it. And I'm like, oh, man, like I'm ready. Suffer, man. Went home, got a bottle, a couple bottles of water, put it by my bed, and I said, just, just water. Let's do this. You know, and I'm sitting there, and, it, you know, first day was great. Second day, I started, like, falling apart. And I was like, you know, I'm taking every pill in my... I'm like, something just got to work to take away this pain, you know? And like, so, so how do you suffer? How's your, what's your pain when you, your threshold for pain? What's that look like? Second, or third, do you shrink away from doing things that you know you should do because you know it will not feel good? Do you back away from things that you know you should do because you know it's not going to feel good? And what I mean, I mean, that part of that is like staying up for your faith, right? Last, do you fast or practice any type of discipline? So maybe we're placing more faith and trust in sensual pleasure than we thought. Practical advice. <clears throat> now again, you know, I, I think a lot of us take vacations at some point. Do a mission trip. You know, whenever we did the mission trip with the high school kids, five days of the trip was working with the poor. Two days we spent just sightseeing the, the country. Man, if we could make every vacation like that, we'd be saints. Okay? Uh, maybe when you, or uh, second, second thing, maybe practical advice. Uh, when you want to buy a new thing, new pair of clothes, whatever it is, go to your room, go to your closet, take the best of what you have and give it away. I mean, this is crazy stuff, you guys, but this is jumping off cliffs. You know, I think when, when at least when I go to the closet, I'm like, you know, I got a lot of stuff. I got to give some away to the poor. I'm like, okay, here's my dirty undies. Here's my nasty t-shirts with holes in them. Here's my bad socks. That can go to the poor. How often do we give away our best? How often do we give away our best? Now, I'll tell you what, you know, it's kind of fun giving away your best. <clears throat> Somebody needs some, you know, and you could give them this, you could give them this. Like, Here, take this. It's fun. 
I mean, after you're done, you're like, crap, what did I just do? <laughs> but, you, you know, there's a certain degree of like, okay, I'm, I'm, I feel free. Freer. Okay? Finally, blessed are, those, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you because of your faith in the Son of God. Another way to say this, blessed are you if you don't put your faith in the approval of others. <clears throat> Remember, these Beatitudes are Jesus' way of saying, this is how you love me. So you don't put your approval... Your faith in the approval of others. Some signs. How concerned are you about how people think of you? How much does it bother you when you are not noticed for something you did? Or how much does it bother you when someone else gets more attention than you do? Maybe we're placing a little more faith in the approval of others than we are in God. Practical advice. This is all Therese of man. Do things that won't be noticed. Little things. The more little things you do the greater you'll be. You know, it's a famous saying by Mother, Mother Teresa, we don't have to do great things, we have to do small things with great love. <clears throat> also, another practical advice, stand up for your faith. Even when it sucks. <laughs> and you guys, when you do these things, we don't do it because we're just like, I want to be holy. We do it because we want to be better lovers. We do it out of love. And so when you stand up, you know, how many times, uh, you don't have to shake your hands, raise your hands, shake your heads, raise your hands. <clears throat> how many times do you get like, you know, you're sitting there and you hear something being talked about and you're like, I really need to go say something. I really need to go say something. Or somebody brings up something and you're like, gosh, I should really, in love, you know, in charity, kind of correct that. But you don't. Why? Because you're in a self-dialogue. I encourage you, the next time you're like, man, I really need to go say something, you stop and you say, come Holy Spirit. Jesus, give me the grace to go and lovingly defend you. It's all about that relating, you guys. Otherwise, it's self-dialogue. And if it's just us, we're going to cower every time. But if Christ is with us, the Holy Spirit's with us, we have a bit more courage. We have to do these things every day. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me every day, daily, okay? I've noticed in my own life that when I choose what is harder, it stinks, but it makes me into a better man. I'll tell you one more story. I was in, uh, <clears throat> so I, I fly a lot. <laughs> Comes another airport story. So I was in, uh, I was getting ready to fly to Rome and I was in, De or Atlanta. And in Atlanta, there were, there were two priests. There was kind of this tall, slender guy. Uh, and then this kind of big, heavy monk guy. It's kind of funny. <clears throat> and he came over and he's like, hey, you know, the monk guy, and we're talking, and we're having a good time. And then I, and the, this other kind of slender-looking priest was standing beside me, and I turned over, and I'm like, hey, I'm like, hey, man, what's your name? And he's like, oh, uh, Archbishop Coakley. I'm the Archbishop from Oklahoma City. I'm like, oh, your excellency. Well, very good to see you. You know, because he's, and you can see his pectoral cross. I don't know how I missed that. <clears throat> so he's sitting, you know, and so we talk a little bit. I feel like an idiot. And we walk into the plane, and because I'm platinum medallion, with Delta, <clears throat> I had an exit row aisle with nothing in front of me, huge copious amounts of room, and as I'm walking to my seat, like jacked up, because I'm like, I got this awesome seat, I see Archbishop Coakley in the middle between two enormous men, and I literally like this, and I'm like, man, that's the art, that's terrible, somebody should give him a seat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I go and I sit down, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I'm like, man, this is great. And I got this little like petite woman next to me. So I get even, you know, I was like, 
Um, and, and just as I'm sitting there, I'm getting ready because I have this whole rigmarole I go through for the trip to Rome, uh, which involves copious amounts of sleeping pills and a lot of water. <laughs> just, I can't, I, anyway, it's a long story, but I digress. So I'm sitting there and I'm getting all ready and I just, it just won't go away. <laughs> this voice, give up your seat, give up your seat. Let the archbishop sit here. And I'm just like, yeah, no, the archbishop. He wants to be poor. That's why he sat there. (laughs) He's grown in virtue. I wouldn't want to take that away from him. (laughs) You know what? I'm fighting over, fighting over, fighting. And finally, I'm just like, you're just like, ah! You know, like, I don't know. That that poem, the the Hound of Heaven, he just won't leave you alone. And I'm like, because the whole thing that's going through my mind is like, it's not an hour flight. This is nine and a half hours. You know, and I'm like, and all of a sudden it was just like, you flipping loser. How do you expect to die a martyr? You always say, oh, I'm die a martyr. You can't even give up your seat. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, fine. <laughs> now look, holiness isn't always like this. Oh, okay, you know. <clears throat> Maybe it is for some people, but for me, I'm just like, fine, you know. Get all my stuff, and I'm like, Sitting there, I'm like, oh, come on, say no, say no. <laughs> and I get up there, and I'm like, I'm like, your excellency, I was like, because he's like, he's like 6'4". He's a big, he's a very tall man. So he need, leg room would be good, you know, not me. So I'm like, I'm like, your excellency, I was like, I, I just wanted to offer you my seat, you know, in the exit row. I was like, tons of leg room, tons of, I said, this is just, I'm a lot smaller than you are. I said, I'd be honored if you'd, if you'd take that seat. And he's like, Sure. And I'm like, damn. <laughs> You're like internally like, oh. So I was like, okay, just come this way. You know? So I show him, take him to the seat. Like, as I'm walking away, I'm just like. <laughs> so I go and I sit down in the seat. And you guys, it was miserable. It was miserable. And again, why I'm telling you this, <laughs> basically, partially because I'm, I'm kind of an idiot. But also because, you know, some, this is what it looks like to get it right. I don't get it right. And you saw how much I fought just to get this stupid thing right. But as I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm like, holiness doesn't always feel good. <laughs> you know, I'm between two huge men. And by the time we landed the plane, I swear, we landed in Naples and taxied to Rome. It was like an hour taxi. And at that point, you know, I'm about to lose it. And I'm just like, pull the plane out of the game! You know, like... I'm just like biting my tongue and just sitting there fist clenched. I mean, the people beside me must have been like, what the hell is the matter with this man? <laughs> just praying. I'm like, come on, Jesus, get me off this plane. When we get off the plane, you know, and throughout the trip, I, I would get up and use the bathroom. And every time, you know, the archbishop is, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, that's great. <laughs> But it was terrible, man. It was terrible. But those are the kind of... But at the end of it, when I came out, and he's like... He came up to me, he's like, he's like, Father, that was one of the kindest things somebody's ever done for me as an archbishop. And all of a sudden, it's like... Oh, yeah. I'm take that seat again next time. You know what? I'm just going to choose it when I get to pick my seat. Worst seat on the plane? Give it to me. You know? Like, that's... But it's, it's these slow movements... These slow, I'm gonna, the next talk I'm going to talk about is starting small. God loves to start small. And out of that, he begins to build the character of virtue. But it's at all times, everywhere. <clears throat> and then it should affect every decision we make. And to choose the ego is something very, very, 
very dangerous. Very dangerous. We choose it way too often. It's about me, my wants, my wishes, my desires, what I want to do. And it's a dangerous place to live. I'm going to tell you one more story. Sorry, then I'm done. It was supposed to be like a th- yes, 47 minutes already. <clears throat> Sorry, I digress. But I heard this story again. This is one I stole. Um, about the guy Adolf Eichmann. Have you ever heard of Adolf Eichmann? Okay, you, you've heard of Heinrich Himmler? Really? Oh my gosh. Heinrich Himmler was the head of the SS, the Nazi Gestapo. <clears throat> he was probably the second worst man in the world, <laughs> next only to Adolf Hitler himself, and maybe Joseph Mengel, the doctor who you know, brutally tortured little children, and Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann <clears throat> was the one that orchestrated the Holocaust. So Hitler said, uh, the final decision, right? Execute them all. Eichmann was the one that put it in place. <clears throat> now, here's the interesting thing about Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was a good man, originally. <clears throat> he was a salesman. He knew how to move product. He knew how to get things done. He knew how to organize. And Hitler saw this. Hitler saw it in him. And he knew that he had a wound. Because when he was a little kid, he was a little more darker complected. And everybody called him the little Jew. And so internally, Eichmann began to hate Jews. <clears throat> Because he kept believing the lie. Because he kept consenting to the lie. And as he grew up, he became a very successful businessman. Hitler saw it and he said, this guy can get things done. So I'll give you a good job in my army and get things done. And at first, you know, like he just did simple things like organizing the Jewish ghettos. He didn't like the Jews anyway, so it wasn't hard for him to organize the Jewish ghettos. And then Hitler started telling me he wanted him to execute the Jews. <clears throat> There was such a hatred inside of him because he was so self-focused that he said, get this. So Himmler, the real bad guy, when Himmler saw what Eichmann was doing to the Jews, it said he he got nauseous. Because Eichmann would line, he'd dig a big trough, he'd line them up, and he'd just run down the line with a machine gun. And they'd all fall into, just one after the other, fall into this grave and they'd bury him. And And Himmler said, we've got to do something more humane. And that's when Eichmann came up with the gas chamber. Eichmann, at the end of the war, <clears throat> he ended up escaping. And uh, the Jewish kind of CIA found him. I think it was in Argentina. And they brought him back to Israel and put him on trial for war crimes. You can watch this video. There's a video on YouTube. <clears throat> and there was a man named Yehiel Denur. And he was in uh, Auschwitz. He was one of the, the prisoners. Uh, and he was, on, he was on the stand, and Eichmann is across the room in this bulletproof cage, glass cage. Because, you could, I mean, everybody wanted him dead. <clears throat> and the whole trial, Eichmann just stares at, at Denur. And you can see it, there is nothing left in this man. Nothing. I mean, just pure evil, pure wickedness. And Denur is trying to testify. <clears throat> they bring out one of the striped uniforms. They say, this is what you wore. He said, yes, that's what we wore. Blah, blah, blah. They keep saying all these things. And at one point, Eichmann and him lock eyes. <clears throat> and Denur, like looks at him and you can see. And like from that moment, he, he, he like starts shaking. And he's like, he's, he's moving around. And they're like, Mr. Denur, please settle down. And he's just like, 
And then he's like, boom, he just hits the ground. He falls out of the witness stand onto the ground, passes out. <clears throat> and two weeks later, so the whole thing erupts, you know. Two weeks later, they interviewed him. And they said, what happened? You know, when you looked at him, did you see, like, evil incarnate? And Denor said, no. He said, that's what surprised me. When I looked at Eichmann, I thought I was going to see the great monster general who commanded people to their death, who had more power than anybody in the world. But when I looked at Eichmann, I became afraid for myself. Because Eichmann, Eichmann made choices to become who he was. And Eichmann and I are both human. And I too am capable of doing what he did. And then he said this, shocked the world. He said, Eichmann is in all of us. And that's a freaky thing to think about. That the choices you make, it's not like Eichmann was this like, wicked man from the very beginning. He turned into that because he believed lies and because he was self-reliant and he was self-focused. On the contrary to his example, read that book on John Paul II. And you're going to see a man that chose the complete opposite direction. A man that became a man for others. A man that was in deep love and relationship with the living God. And a man that had so much power he changed the world for the good. And when I say John Paul II, you all go. And when I say Adolf Eichmann, you go. As C.S. Lewis said, how mundane are the evil tyrants of this world. How terribly similar they all are. But how gloriously different is God in his saints. The devil has one idea. <clears throat> Domination, manipulation, murder, totalitarianism, all this stuff about power. God, God is infinite. And God has an infinite number of saints in his mind. And every one of us here in this room is called to be a specific type of saint with a specific type of charism. But you have to make that choice every day to choose him over yourself, to love the cross over your ego, because love of Christ is love of the cross. Let us pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask for the gift, the grace, to be all in. We ask, Lord, that in every moment of our lives we might choose what is harder out of love for you, because in the measure that we choose what is less out of love is the measure that we will grow in sanctity. We ask for the gift of your son's heart to be our heart. That the power of the Holy Spirit may reign in us. That we might be conduits. That we might be men and women for others. For the church. And for your glory. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just want to give you a few uh, scripture passages to pray over. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. <clears throat> Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. Matthew 5, 1 to 12.
46. And can I read you just one last thing? You guys going to be okay with that? <clears throat> this is from Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. It says, Jesus has always had many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire consolation, but few who care for trial. He finds many to share his table, but few to take part in his fasting. All desire to be happy with him. Few wish to suffer anything for him. Many follow him to the breaking of the bread, but few to the drinking of the chalice of his passion. Many revere his miracles. Few approach the shame of the cross. Many love him as long as they encounter no hardship. Many praise and bless him as long as they receive some comfort from him. But if Jesus hides himself and leaves them only for a while, they will fall either into complaints or into deep dejection. Those, on the contrary, who love him for his own sake and not for any comfort of their own, bless him in all trial and anguish of heart, as well as in the bliss of consolation. Even if he should never give them consolation, yet they would continue to praise him and wish always to give him thanks. What power there is in the pure love of Jesus. Love that is free from all self-interest and all self-love. I think uh, <clears throat> we are going to get skis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>